0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on September 5, 2018, discussing selected issues from the proposed Section 965 regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kaikendal, a PwC tax partner and leader of our specialty practices and Rebecca Lee, Elizabeth Nelson, and David Sotos, all PwC tax partners in our international services tax practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on cash position and earnings and profits issues under the proposed Section 965 regulations. Have a listen.
1: With that, I'm going to jump over to cash position issues. Rebecca, I'm going to bring you into the discussion and let you lead uh, some of the topics here.
2: Absolutely. And I know you guys touched on The changes to the cash position rule in the earlier webcast. And so we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive around the issues that we frankly fielded the most questions on since the original drop of the regulations. Um, Places we're we're spending time. I mean, fundamentally, the regulations package didn't provide guidance on all the different categories of cash position. And if I'm being candid, since it's just the four of us and maybe a few thousand people on the webcast, (laughs) It was a little disappointing. This is a space where the industry, uh, and from a variety of different sectors, spent a lot of time in dialogue with the folks at IRS and Treasury, trying to provide some color around all the areas in which guidance would be welcomed, Um, where we did not get guidance. Um, The regulations don't provide any meaningful definition of what is part of your cash position. They break down the world into cash. Accounts receivable and accounts payable, reflecting the guidance that was in the earlier notices, and then sort of fair market value of the laundry list of things that are grouped together in the regulations language as cash-equivalent assets. And beyond that, there's not a whole lot to speak of. So it leaves open a variety of areas that I think, frankly, had been previously flagged to IRS and Treasury. Cash to fund foreign acquisitions, where you have sort of a stockpile of cash already set aside offshore to make an acquisition, but it's earmarked and certainly not available for repatriation. Uh, Blocked and restricted cash, so cash that is in jurisdictions where either you can't bring it back or there are legal restrictions on bringing it back. Uh, The treatment of commodities, particularly those that are held for use as inventory or as supplies in your business. And then finally, uh, in an area of much pain, um, when you hold... Stock of a publicly traded foreign corporation where your ownership percentage takes you above what makes it a specified foreign corporation. And in many cases, that ownership percentage can be fairly robust. And you look at that and you say that has to be distinguishable from liquid treasuries and other sort of personal property of a type which is actively traded and for which there's an established financial market. Um, Let's talk about what the preamble did tell us. I, I did lament a few minutes ago that we didn't have guidance. The preamble went out of its way to address the comments that were provided by taxpayers, and particularly, with respect to the definition of cash position, went out of their way to say, look, you've asked for things that start to look and feel like liquidity-based exceptions, uh, and we're not providing a liquidity-based exception for any of these categories. Whether an asset is liquid or not isn't material to the determination of whether it's part of a cash position. We think the laundry list provided by Congress in the statute is dispositive of what's a cash position. I would side note that there was language in that preamble quoted from the legislative history that specifically said that the assets needed to be liquid in nature, neither here nor there. What it does tell us though, is that the IRS and Treasury are looking for bright line determinations. Um, These are not rules that frankly lend themselves to bright line determinations because it's a laundry list of categories of assets clients are going to have to take a view in terms of what's in each of those categories. One bright note before we turn the page is that the rules did retain the relatively favorable rules for hedging transactions. So if you have, an, if you have a position in a foreign currency hedge or an interest rate hedge or something else that is hedging a transaction that is not itself a cash position, similarly that derivative is out of your cash position calculation. Relatively good news. So one of the areas, and I think this is the single most common question that I receive around cash positions, is around notional pooling. And there were a host of discussions with IRS and Treasury personnel around how notional pools should be treated because in many cases, these transactions are not characterized as loans between foreign affiliates but they kind of have a similar look and feel in the sense of if I have a credit balance sitting with a bank, I don't have the sort of unrestricted free use of that cash in an amount in excess of what related parties have drawn down from that same bank. And the proposed regulations didn't give a broad-based exception. Um, What they did instead was they solicited comments and they they reminded taxpayers that the characterization of these arrangements is driven by general U.S. federal income tax principles, which include things like substance over form principles and other judicial doctrines. So where does this leave, folks? I think in part you're informed by your prior treatment. If you've been treating these transactions, your notional pools, as not transaction between affiliates for purposes of 267, for related party interest expense, for calculating um, whether look-through is applicable, foreign currency gains and losses, that might inform how you view them currently. On the flip side, in many situations, there's no such thing as a definition of notional pooling. And candidly, a lot of these agreements are ambiguous as to their characterization. So this may be an opportunity to take a closer look.
1: With that, that'll bring us to our first polling question, which is, is your company still refining its cash position? Um, While folks are responding to that, Rebecca, I want to come back to you with just a practical question around regulations and what's happening right now, and that is, with the guidance that's out there, with what we know, your dialogue with a lot of clients, are they still um, in a position of doing heavy scrubs around cash position and trying to understand that, or what's current status of, of people looking at this?
2: I think we see a diversity, candidly, Uh, and I think it's a good thing. I think a lot of folks took generalized views to be able to book their financials, and especially for fiscal year clients, I think it's an opportunity to take a closer look before they finalize.
1: Yeah, and then I go back to the other point you raised. There was a lot of feedback to Treasury, particularly on things like acquisition-related cash and things that were out there that kind of generated a hardship for clients there really isn't another avenue for people to pursue here to try and address that. I mean, this is this is what you got is essentially what I'm hearing.
2: I, I think that's fair. The the regulation, particularly the preamble, did solicit additional feedback. So I'm not saying that sort of the regs are out there and we're done with uh, discussing this with the IRS and Treasury. That being said, I think the time has come to take a really close look at the guidance as it exists to date and all of the relevant positions you could assert around your cash positions.
1: Okay. All right. Why don't we uh, why don't we move on to talking about ENP measurement issues? And David, I'm going to come over to you and maybe you can start walking us through some of the issues that you're seeing in this space.
3: Sure. We're going to start off by revisiting uh, an issue that was uh, a rule that was addressed in the first webcast regarding specified payments um, and disregarding specified payments between measurement dates. Um, this was something that was referenced in the conference report as something that the government could address. Um Notwithstanding the fact that the statute generally provides that a dividend from one SFC to another in, a, in an inclusion year uh, is respected. Um, but because of double counting and double non-counting concerns, uh, the government went ahead and issued notice 2018-7 and, and articulated how they were going to address uh, this double counting uh, concern. Now, really... In essence, what they said in the notice is we're going to address it to make sure that there's not double counting. They did not specify how they would address it on the payor side or the payee side. And what we've seen now in considering this rule more uh, is that the limited scope of the rule, uh, it's applicable only for determining EMP as of the 1231 measurement date. Um, The simplicity of the rule in that it contemplates really uh, it articulates a rule that uh, contemplates really only one payment, um, and that is many times not the typical situation uh, as we'll get to. Um, and then the interaction uh, with with what is otherwise articulated as an ordering rule for determining subpart F and other distributions and the 965 inclusion, et cetera, uh, for all of the uh, SFCs in the structure. All of those things, the, the limited scope and, and et cetera, creates uh, difficulty um, and, and uncertainty. And so just to review here, the rule is set forth in dash 4F and, and identifies it as a specified payment uh, that would be effectively disregarded in determining the 1231 measurement date EMP of the payor. Uh, and when it applies, uh, the payor and the payee SFCs must be related either immediately before or after, um, and they must not have the same tentative measurement date. So one has a 1231 measurement date, the other has an 112 measurement date, and the payment must occur in between the measurement dates. Um, and it would reduce the EMP of of the uh, payor SFC. If these requirements are met, then then the rule bites and applies, and 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 causes the EMP to be uh, considered uh, effectively not paid, whether it's an interest payment, a royalty payment, a dividend payment, et cetera. Uh, the next slide, we have an example of this. And this is a simplified example that we had on the prior webcast. Here, we have a 11-2 uh, measurement date EMP uh, in the lower tier, $100. That's the only EMP in the system. Uh, and there's a, a dividend-paid uh, in between the measurement dates on eleven three between the lower tier and the upper tier SFC, causing the upper tier SFC to otherwise have EMPs of 1231 of $100, uh, and have and causing the payor to have zero, because of the higher of analysis that's conducted in the statute, each of these SFCs would have $100 of 965A. Uh, inclusion um, because of the EMP that they have on the respective measurement dates, uh, and this is where the, the double counting uh, occurs and is resolved through this, this specified payment rule. So the analysis here is the payor and payor are are related. They have different tentative measurement dates, and that SFC one has a twelve thirty one, and SFC two has an eleven two. Uh, the dividend occurs between the measurement dates, and it otherwise would reduce SFC two's EMP as of twelve thirty one. So, the the issue here is we would disregard this in determining twelve thirty one EMP and SFC two would still have that $100 of EMP, and therefore SFC1 should not be a defect that has any, any inclusion with respect to it uh, as far as USP is concerned. As I said, we'll get into more complications going forward. Yeah, and I think that's where the issues come into play, right?
4: So as David indicated, there is a limitation to the scope of the Dash 4F rule which just adjusts, just applies for purposes adjusting the December 31st E&P of both the payor and the payee instead of generally applying for 965 purposes. And that then calls into play another provision that also seems to apply simultaneous with the Dash 4F rule because there is no coordination rule between the two provisions. That is the ordering rule in Dash 2B, which applies for purposes of adjusting the ENP of a specified foreign corporation in the toll charge year. So, in order to uh, follow the statutory language, which allows for movement of ENP between two specified foreign corporations in the toll charge year, they put in place this ordering rule. Step one of that ordering rule is to ter- determine your subpart F income at each of the specified foreign corporations, and then increase in- uh, correspondingly your PTI. Um, subpart FPTI. Then you account in step two for distributions that occur prior to January 1st. And so that would allow for movement of the subpart FPTI, but also presumably of C3 E&P between the specified foreign corporations. So untaxed E&P moving between the specified foreign corporations. Then in step three, you determine your 965 amounts, your post-86 E&P, your deferred foreign income, et cetera. After you've accounted in step two for movement of untaxed EP, then in step four, we account for distributions that have not been accounted for in step two. And then finally, we would account for 965, 956 rather. And if we move on to the next slide, there's another rule that then is implicated by the application of the ordering rule and the double count rule to the same transaction. Under the proposed regs, Dean paid credits under 960, Um, with respect to the 965 amount, are computed as if it were a dividend under 902, and in the 960 regs, there is a priority role when you have both a 902 credit computation and a 960 credit computation that occur in the same taxable year for the same entity, and that priority role indicates that you would calculate your 960 credits first and then reduce your E&P and taxes accordingly to then compute your 902 credits. And in this fact pattern, where we have two rules applying at the same time, which are accounting for the same E&P in many circumstances twice, both as a toll charge amount that you're picking up as subpart F, and as a C3 movement of untaxed E&P, so as a dividend, um, you have this you have this rule that applies that you would calculate both the 902 and the 960 credit. And if you calculate the 960 credit first, in many circumstances, that means that most or all of the credits would be picked up under your 960 deemed paid credit calculation and haircut. And there would be no credits left in the pool or little credits left in the pool to then um, move as a 902 Credit with the dividend that moves up in our simple example from SFC 2 to SFC 1. Um, that's because, again, your numerator in the fraction for your F2C calculation accounts for essentially the same E&P twice. And so it is in excess of your denominator in that calculation, which pulls the credits under this priority rule to the deemed paid credits under 960. So if we go to the next slide, we have an example. Um, where we're revisiting the example that David went over and layering on this ordering rule in dash 2B. Um, Again, there is a lack of coordination between the two provisions, so it's not clear um, what you're supposed to do in this circumstance. So presumably under the current proposed drag language, they would both apply. So here we have both a payment of $100 dividend under the ordering rule, but we also have this same dividend payment was a specified payment and was disregarded under the Dash 4F rule, and therefore is a toll charge inclusion at SFC2. And so we implicate this priority rule under the 960 regs, and under that rule, if applicable, you would calculate the 960 credits first, meaning the $20 of credits that we're showing at SFC2 would be picked up as Dean paid credits for the toll charge inclusion and then haircut under 965G. There would be no credits left in the pool to move up with the dividend. Um, One question to ask is whether that REG in one point, that REG provision in 1.960-1i2 is still relevant for 965 inclusion purposes. There were statutory changes around the same time that that provision was put in the regulations, and there is a question about whether it would it should still apply in this circumstance. But this application of the two rules, the ordering rule and the dash four F rule, you know begs some kind of coordination between the two um, to not have them overlap. And so it's an issue that most taxpayers are having to deal with um, because the dash four F rule does apply to many payments made between the measurement dates. So if we move on to the next slide, we just wanted to highlight here a couple of issues that we've seen with respect to the Dash 4f role. Um, In this example, we have three entities, SFC 1, 2, and 3, and there is a dividend paid between the measurement dates from SFC 2 to SFC 1 and an interest payment between SFC 1 and 2 that is accrued or paid between the measurement dates, and for purposes of this example, we'll, we'll assume the in interest income also accrues between the measurement dates. Um, we have also, for this example, we have no subpart F. So, it is just uh, e that's subject to the toll charge. So, when we look at whether or not the Dash 4F rule applies to both of these payments, we see that um, CFC2 has a tentative ENP measurement date of eleven two, and that's determined by before you apply dash 4f so before the disregard rule cfc1 has a tentative np measurement date of 1231 and cfc3 has a tentative np measurement date of 112 and so both of these payments then fall within the definition of a specified payment and then are disregarded under the dash 4f rule for purposes of determining the 1231 EP of all of the entities which are either payers or payees depending on the the payment or the distribution. So when we do that, um, we reverse out both the dividend income and the interest income on the payee side. And we reverse out the interest expense and the dividend reduction of the ENP on the payor side. And so when we look at um, cfc 2s ENP after the, the dividend has been disregarded, its 1231 E&P has been increased. And if we look at CFC1, its e has been effectively decreased because its interest expense was disregarded, but it had a bigger dividend income amount that was backed out. And then CFC2, or CFC3 rather, it has been, um, its interest income has been disregarded, and therefore its 1231 E&P has gone down. So while CFC 2 and CFC 3, um, CFC1 and CFC2 shift their measurement dates. Um, CFC3 retains its measurement date because you're looking at the ENP after you've made these adjustments and you determine your final EP measurement date. And so once you do that, you then determine what your 965a amount is. And as you can see from the chart, applying the double count rule has actually increased the aggregate 965A amount when you look at the inclusion amounts from 1, 2, and 3 by 5. And one would assume that application of a double count rule that was meant to back out income that is double counted would not result in an increase. So this seems to be uh, maybe an unintended result of this applying when you have multiple payments taken into account the other item that I wanted to call attention to, it's not depicted on the chart, but it's something that can occur when your tentative e measurement date shifts. Um, so if CFC1, for example, had a royalty payment to CFC4, and their tentative e measurement dates before you accounted for the Dash 4F rule, let's say, were both 1231, and so that royalty was not a specified payment under the first application of Dash 4F. But as we saw, both the dividend and the interest payment were specified payments that had to be backed out or disregarded. But once we account for the disregard of the interest expense and the dividend income, that then shifts the, the final ENP measurement date of CFC 1 to 11.2, meaning the royalty income is now double counted. But the rule doesn't seem to allow for iterative applications of the rule. Because it would be circular, you'd have to keep applying it and applying it. And so the final determination of your 965A amount from each of the entities seems to then result in a double counting of a payment that originally was not double counted. And so we also wanted to call attention to that unintended result, perhaps, of the Dash 4F rule applying.
1: Thank you for going through that. A lot, a lot of details, <laughs> but, but honestly trying to get to a couple areas. One you know, in this uh, disregarded payment situation where we can end up with a bigger result than where we were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on on the other side, just dealing with other uncertainties that come about when you start to look at the ordering rules. So challenging stuff. David, I'm going to come to you. I mean, we just went through a couple of really nuanced issues where things come into play, but they generate uncertainty. Um, Just as a whole, if you look at the regs, there are sort of gaps where there isn't guidance to help us. There are other areas where things are sort of overbroad. Um, And we got a filing deadline coming up for people to deal with right now, even on an extended basis to sort of include what potentially is one of the largest inclusions companies have had to put on their tax return. We start to look at what might be some of the, you know, the taxation of all this foreign earnings. Um, What advice do we have for people or what are people trying to do to sort of manage that uncertainty right now?
3: Well, you know, I think um, generally uncertainty uh, breeds flexibility. Um, and and perhaps here even uh, at least temporarily until we get uh, f- final regs uh, and and that is an important point. This is not a this is a one off provision uh, in which they're gonna you know within the next twelve months you're gonna have whatever guidance you have you're gonna have mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know so there there is a limited uh, window you know of, of of taking a position with respect to being flexible etc. I think one thing that uh taxpayers have have done is they've gotten their uh, advisors and their auditors involved on the front end to uh kind of you know hash out issues and and figure out what what where the positions are with respect to the firms et cetera and and what what is reasonable from a filing position uh standpoint um There are certainly issues and I think it varies uh where the result is clearly wrong. Where it might lead to a double counting, uh, for example, um, and and the position just needs to be taken based upon uh, you know what it, what is reasonable based upon the existing guidance On a policy basis. That couldn't be the intent, to your point, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there are other there are other circumstances where uh, there are uh, you know the regulations do not have reliance language, but the notices do, meaning that the notices specifically state that taxpayers may rely on them before. You know, actual final regulations are issued, and in some circumstances, although the regulations are generally incorporating the guidance that was set forth in the notice notices, um, in some circumstances there's been a shift, uh, and so taxpayers acted uh, based upon the notice uh, or notices, and and now they've they've got kind of got the the, the rug pulled out from under them. Um,
4: and, and, and the ordering rule and the dash 4F rule is a perfect example of notice, that because yeah. based on the notice language, one would have expected that the e would have moved up yeah. and yes. not been put back into the pay order. Yes, as a
3: general matter, the statute says that you've regard the the, the the payment from an SFC to an, another SFC. So to resolve that that uh, uncertainty with double counting, one would have thought that you would have you know, ex- respected it and, and taken into account the EP at the uh, recipient level. Um, the, the good news here, I guess, is, is that uh, despite all of the uncertainty, uh, lot, lots of taxpayers will make the election to pay the uh, 965 tax liability uh, over eight years. And, and to the extent that you're, there is not a negligent or intentional disregard of the rules, there will not be an acceleration event. So if you take a position and you end up, you know, you should expect to amend. Um, uh, because the, the final rules will be issued after uh, likely that you filed your return. And, and putting that aside, there are likely to be foreign audits in, in your entities that go back uh, to to the toll charge year or before uh, that will, under the new rules, have to be retroactively taken into account in the relation back year that will filter through. Um, but, but it is a... Uh, it, it, there's no no one answer here. I think other than than to try and marshal uh, the resources to uh, come up with what is what is a reasonable position uh, and, and support
1: out, it. Yeah, try and work out a reasonable position. I'm hearing from you. Try and follow the policy when 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 in doubt of anything else, mm-hmm. and embrace the fact that whatever you put on your return, you're going to be changing in some way. Either you're going to be amending a return or you're submitting an adjustment through the audit process in some way, because guidance is going to be finalized afterwards. You're right. Changes to the numbers are going to be related back, all sorts of things happening. So Mm -hmm. embrace uncertainty, right?
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.